You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, this is Pete Betke of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. Uh, today is Friday, uh, February 26, uh, 2016, and I have as my guest today uh, Bruce Caldwell. Uh, Bruce is a research professor and director of the Center for the History of Political Economy at Duke University. For the past two decades, his research has focused on the multifaceted writings of the Nobel Prize-winning economist and social theorist F.A. Hayek. Uh, Welcome. Hi, good to be here. Uh, let's start out, Bruce, with a, just a sort of a basic question about, um, you know, what are you currently working on uh, and also maybe some of the efforts that you're doing at the center at Duke uh, to advance um, history of economic thought within the profession. But Okay, I could talk for a long time about both of those topics. I'll, I'll take up what I'm currently working on first. Um, I started uh, work on a Family authorized biography of Friedrich Hayek. So, what does that mean? Uh, I was, am still the general editor of the book series, The Collected Works of F.A. Hayek. Uh, I took that over from Stephen Kresge, who took it over from Bill Bartley. And there's only two volumes that are still outstanding one is in press, and then two others still outstanding. And it was always the intention uh, uh, when they started the Collected Works series that the general editor would do a full biography of Hayek. And the idea was, after having done all of the editing of all those volumes, that you'd be in a good position to actually talk about his contributions you know, over his lifetime. Uh, about four and a half years ago, five years ago, uh, I got with the remaining members of the Hayek family. Uh, that's Hayek's daughter, Christine, and now Eska Hayek, who is uh, Larry Hayek's widow. So he had two children with his first wife, none with the second wife. And uh, we started um, thinking about uh, how to execute that. And they were good enough to offer me uh, the family correspondence that was existent that no one else has seen before. So that was all brand new material. Uh, there were letters from Hayek's mother to him from his youth, uh, also during all through World War I. Uh, and then in the 20s, they lived in Vienna, so a little less then, but whenever he'd travel. And then after he moved to uh, London and then Chicago, uh, letters about once every three weeks, four weeks or so. Uh, all in German. Um, she wrote in a old italic style that was very difficult to find someone who was able to translate it. And what I ended up doing is having a master's student who spoke German, who had a uh, stepfather who read the old time German, and he would do the translation, rough translation of her letters. And then the student would do another translation from the regular German into, into English. And it was more to just get a sense of what was going on in the letters. Uh, if there are specific letters that look like they're going to be very interesting, we'll use the have someone else do the make sure the translation is accurate. But um, the process has has been that for about the first three years of this project, um, I was gathering information. I have a co-author, uh, Hans Jörg Klausinger, who's at the University of uh, uh, Vienna. Uh, a university in Vienna. It's not. It's not the University of Vienna that Hayek was at, but it's the. the it was kind of the, a business, mm -hmm. Vienna School of Business and Economics, something like that. Uh, but he's a a, a great uh, historian of uh, economic thought. That's his field in monetary, which is an area that I'm uh, less well versed in. Plus, he obviously is is has German as his as his first language, so. He has been uh, doing all sorts of research in archives in Vienna, 
He's gone to Freiburg. He's gone to some of the places that Hayek would would go to, like Obergurgel and other places, uh, gathering documents, information. Uh, particularly, uh, he w- he would understand how a university system in a German language country would work. So where where to go to find the documents and all the rest. So while he's been working on that end, I was been I've been working on uh, kind of the family life end. And uh, for the first, uh, as I uh, was going to say for the first three years, it was mostly gathering the information to see how, see what things we had before we started executing the writing. And we're, we're just in the last year, year and a half, we've, we've started uh, to begin the writing up work. So I've recently done a, a chapter on um, Hayek's uh, living in England, living in a particular neighborhood in England, what it was like for his kids. I went to that neighborhood with his daughter, Christine. I have about 20, 25 hours of interviews with her. She told me about where she lived, where Lionel Robbins lived, what life was like there. Um, I went through and and had uh, went through the translations, the letters of his correspondence with his family, his two brothers, both of whom were in Germany, and his mother who was in Vienna during uh, the 1930s, which is a very fraught time. Uh, fascinating documents and they were politically much you know they were nationalistic uh, they, they good countrymen uh, so they had lots of political uh, disagreements and difficulties even though um, this is one aspect of the correspondence it's a bit frustrating uh, the, the letters from them Hayek kept but they didn't keep his letters. So I've had to try to piece together what I thought the conversations were in these letters from their reactions to things that he he would have said in his letters. But you can still get a very, very strong sense that they disagreed politically about lots of things. It's an amazing rich history, right, oh, of what wonderful. they went through in the 20th century and the, the sort of from World War One to, you know, through World War II. Um, the personal relationship aspects of things like with Robbins, um, it's kind of a tough thing to reconstruct at some level because since they worked close together, is there much of an archival record or did they just talk to each other yeah. uh, rather than leaving it in a kind of a written record? Um, so the written record is actually, um, there's some letters of interest just before Hayek came there permanently. So he he came and gave the prices and production lectures. So there was some correspondence back and forth before and after that. And then he was invited uh, for a year as an acting, uh, in an acting position, but then uh, a visiting position it was the phrase, uh, was the term that was used. But then uh, about halfway through that, they made him the permanent position uh, offer. So... Just uh, before his his trip to give the lectures, after the trip to give the lectures, and then in the summer before he arrived for the first year that he was there, there's some correspondence. After that, it is really, really spotty about the only stuff had to do with where Lionel was helping him with his English on some of the uh, some of the things that he was publishing. Uh, he really uh, gave a lot of help with the prices and production lecture, for example. So there is there are some documents, but not really correspondence. And then after that, uh, it very spotty because of as you just as you said, they're they're seeing each other every day, so they're not corresponding. And once that, the the time that they're separated, which is during World War II, and uh, uh, Robbins is doing government work in London. Hayek is up in Cambridge because the LSE evacuated to Cambridge. Uh, there's not anything because uh, Lionel is doing government work, so he's really not supposed to be communicating with with people. Uh, there was there was really kind of a cutoff there. And after Hayek went to uh, the states, uh, they had a falling out because of, it occurred at the same time as Hayek's divorce and. Robbins uh, was quite upset about that. There, there's a long story there too. Yeah. So there wasn't really much. There really not very much correspondence uh, between the two of them. I'm very fascinated. I'm wondering if you have any insights on this, which is that um, because of the work of Stefan Bohm and others, we have a kind of an idea and a nostalgic remembrance of the seminar in Vienna that was Morgenstern and Hayek and Machlup and Schutz and all of them around Mises. 
And in the uh, interviews with Alchin, Hayek talks about the wonderful seminar that he and Robbins ran. And Robbins refers in some places about the wonderful seminar, but it's hard to reconstruct in the same way that you do the Vienna seminar or the way you would do today. Like if I went to the Center for History of Political Economy and wanted to look up who you've had in for the last several years, there would be a record because of the internet and we keep these records on the web now. But um, it's, it's, it's finding out the, the, the content that was discussed and the kind of ideas um, that was being developed in the Robbins Hayek seminar seemed to me kind of amazing because the LSE became this amazing in the 30s, this tremendous hotbed of intellectual ideas and economics. Yeah, I've just uh, right now, because I'm working on a chapter uh, on Hayek in Cambridge, which is right after the 1930s period. So I'm looking at a lot of his reminiscences. And he said that his period at the LSE in the 1930s was one of the most intellectually stimulating in terms of the economics. And he said, you know, he learned a huge amount from his colleagues, uh, particularly in the in the Robbins Hayek seminar. So uh, Sue Housen uh, has done a biography of Robbins that is really meticulous uh, work, wonderful, wonderful book. And she would know where, if there were materials yeah. that would specify exactly what the topics were. But I think you're right. Uh, what we would know is the time of day that the seminar was, but not the, necessarily the specific papers that were given. And the only way you'd be able to construct that, and it would be a partial reconstruction, would be looking at some of the correspondence and then if 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 night had come through, for example, um, uh, there would be some indication of him having visited that day or something. Now, you, you have written, obviously, a, another earlier major book on Hayek, Hayek's Challenge, which is more of an intellectual uh, biography, the evolution of his ideas and whatnot over his long career and in the various different uh, disciplines. And you've been the editor of the Collected Works. What were some of the biggest challenges besides, as you say out in the in the beginning of, the, of uh, Hayek's challenge, the the problem was the challenge of Hayek is that he's in all these different disciplines and his career spans seven decades or whatever it is. But what are some of the other challenges and exciting challenges that you've come across, both in doing the finishing up the Collected Works project as well as the uh, this biography that you're working on now? Really different challenges in the in the two different projects. Uh, the Collected Works, when I took it over from Stephen Kresge, uh, there was no money. Uh, that is, that just, is always a challenge. <laughs> and, 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 and you need money if you're going to try to convince people to become volume editors and actually get their work done. And even with the money that we were able to pay uh, honoraria to the individual volume editors, uh, some of them took a really long time. Now, in the end, if it's a if it's a quality product, uh, which I think the volumes have been, uh, that that is okay. And if it takes a long time to do something, uh, you know, some people work more quickly than others. Uh, Sandy Peart did a wonderful, beautiful volume uh, on John Stuart Mill, Hayek's writings on John Stuart Mill. But she took over the project, and then she became this dean at the University of Richmond, which, as anyone who's done administrative work yeah. knows, that's that's a, a, a big bite to chew uh, to bite off. So uh, she took a little longer, but the volume is just superb. So, um, it, and I had to raise money to support that. And ultimately, what ended up happening uh, after many false starts was that I was able to get Liberty Fund and the University of Chicago Press to work together um, to so that Liberty Fund would produce their very beautiful and high-quality paperback editions of the volumes in the collected works, uh, and in exchange for that uh, would provide me with funds that I could use to pay honoraria to the volume editors, and also uh, sometimes I would need funds for translations or things like that or getting rights um, for uh, things that Hayek published in places that you have to pay to 
to reproduce it. So uh, that has been once that was uh, put into place, uh, things really went very smoothly after that. The two, just to clarify, you said there's two remaining volumes. Those are Lawlessation and Liberty, and that's right. is the Sensory Order one? Or? The Sensory Order is, is in press. In uh, press. Victor Van Berg is, is the volume editor for that one, and it will include the Sensory Order. And most of the volumes also include materials that are related right. that may not have been published. So uh, the Sensory Order volume will also include a translation of Hayek's original 1920 uh, student essay uh, that uh, gave rise to some of the ideas in the sensory order, as well as uh, about systems and within systems, within systems and about systems, this uh, unfinished essay that he wrote in the 1950s after he published the sensory order that was an attempt to move beyond uh, some of the claims in the sensory order to, I think, a, a kind of a causal uh, model that he was never able to accomplish. Uh, there were many things that Hayek wanted to do that he wasn't able to do, but it, 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 all of them are a testament to yeah. uh, the the, the, uh, the fertility of his mind that he was even attempting. Yes, I'm, I'm very fascinated to see Victor's... I, I haven't read any of the stuff associated with Victor's stuff, but Victor's teacher was a man named Hans Albert. And Hans Albert accused neoclassical economics of what he called model Platonism. And in that essay, he has a great line, which he says that neoclassical economics will never be able to repair its institutional deficiency until it re, uh, repairs its behavioral deficiency. So his argument was that the no standard neoclassical model was built on a wrong psychological foundations. And so, and this has led to Victor then working on rule following behavior. Um, so I'm kind of fascinated to see how Victor negotiates this in the interview because Victor's work, to a large extent, was always more institutional, but yet it's built on this idea of rule-following behavior, which comes out of you know his his studies with with Hans Albert early on, and um, so I'm I'm kind of intrigued by how he you know what he has to say about what we do with the sensory order and what we learn from it. Yeah, and so we had a bit of a negotiation. Part of the responsibility of the general editor is to try to uh, help shape the editorial introductions, and my way of trying to do that, and I wasn't always successful, but uh, my, my goal was that uh, rather than have someone provide an interpretive essay of what was going on in the volume, rather than do that, create a uh, the historical understanding the place con. place the con, place the 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 work within the context in which it it was created. That's a very different sort of sure. uh, approach from offering a, an assessment of what what the work means. Yeah. And and I said, you'll be able to do that. I, I, I would tell editors, you'd be able to do that after you've done the the editing of the volume. But but do it in a journal article right. or or, or okay. a monograph or something like that because that. It's more – we want these things to stand the test of time. And the best way to have them stand the test of time is not to offer a specific interpretation but rather just tell us where the thing came from sure. and then let other people do the work of interpretation subsequently. Yeah. That's the appropriate scholarly approach to those things I think. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the one that, that, you know, that I settled on. I'm, yeah. I'm an historian of economics so that's, that's the approach I would, I yeah. would naturally take. Yeah. Um, but it's been a, it's been a real uh, – uh, learning process because I wasn't good at, at trying to figure out how to raise money. You know, I'm an academic, but I had to try to try to figure out a way to to get the project to be able to move along. And uh, uh, it it is interesting to deal with academics. You know, the herding cats uh, metaphor does sometimes uh, come to mind so, yeah. since some some of the days when I, I felt like things weren't moving forward. But now that it's almost done. I mean, I'm very proud of the of the of the work that the individual editors have done, and I did a few of the volumes myself, and I really enjoyed doing yeah. that because uh, to do that kind of uh, uh, historical context providing, you you just dive in and read all this stuff that was being written by Hayek, but also the people he was responding to at the time period, and you really immerse yourself in a particular period of time, and it's 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 fun. I mean, I, it's something that I really enjoy. Yeah, I very much enjoyed. Um, when you uh, first did the uh, the sort of volumes and then setting up into your book discussing sort of Walter Rathenau and 
all of the sort of context of the times of which Hayek grew up as a young economist thinking about these issues so, so associated with um, basically planning and the way that you organize an economy and whatnot. Um, was there any particular challenges in addition to the challenge that you had from the first book, which is just that Hayek wrote for seven decades and across all these fields that you're now feeling pinched of with this particular volume? So the the book that I'm working on now will attempt to give an overview, not in the sort of detail that would have happened in each of the individual volumes in the collected works, uh, but an, an overview of his intellectual contributions, um, but again, also a lot about him as a person, his life, his family. So it's going to be an attempt to meld those things together. Yeah. And you really are I'm, – I'm constantly shifting gears in trying to, to do something like that. And it is more difficult to write about a person and his family. I almost feel like I'm prying when I mm -hmm. ask Christine questions about her father and their, their relationship and how did the mother do with the divorce. And, yeah, these are things that most people don't like talking about and to as particularly when you're dealing with a a, a elderly british lady yeah <laughs> I, it took me a while to start but uh, luckily she's very forthcoming and a, just a wonderful person mm -hmm. very very uh uh just a great person really enjoy have enjoyed my relationship with christine Hyde. um so uh trying to blend together an intellectual history make coherent sense out of his contributions without imposing any overarching structure on it. But you always want to be able to do that to tell a story. And you have to take, it, at the end of the day, uh, you have to express opinions about the thing that you're looking at, the person you're looking at. So how to, how to bring all that together, st still haven't done it. And plus you have a co-author. Yeah. So, uh, so, so there's, there are other things that's still ahead. So one last question about the biography, which is in many ways, I think one of the, personally, one of the most uh, interesting biographies is Skidelsky's biographies on Keynes because Keynes is just this it's you read them and you would you'd want to go have a beer with Keynes, right? And and sit down and talk just to meet him because the he, it, the communication, no matter how much you disagree with him, the communication of him as a person is that he's this dynamic personality, attractive personality that you know you're drawn to. Um, Hayek like I mean what you know we, I never met him I've only seen him on video uh, at a very very advanced age uh, in his prime was he it seems like he must have been charismatic because he could hardly speak the language and yet the story is is that people were attracted to his ideas and whatnot and just a little bit of sense of that now that you've studied the man for mm -hmm. so long so he he uh, is an impressive figure uh, a flawed figure, certainly in terms of modern sensibilities about what a family man should be. Uh, he was very much a man of his own generation and class. So uh, his vision of what a good wife should do is to support the husband in whatever the husband's endeavors were and, and, <laughs> and make it so that he could accomplish what he needed to accomplish. Uh, he... Uh, was like many, many uh, of his colleagues, uh, uh, in, particularly in England, you know, you have the image of the children appearing in their best clothes at 6 p.m. and then going off at 6.45 and that, that's it. <laughs> you know, they show up at tea time. Now, Christine said it wasn't quite like that, but he would have really liked it if it had been, you yeah. know, that sort yeah. of thing. So, I mean, his, his that aspect of his personality would be, I think, quite difficult for somebody like people of our generation who are not used to having quite that kind of separation between uh, the parents and the, and, the, and the children and the role of the wife and all of that. Uh, he seemed to be somebody who was very well liked, uh, a man's man in that sense, uh, 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 gregarious, engaging, uh, interested in what other people had to say. I've heard this over and over again by people who have met him in ways that uh, were 
uh, brief, but he would always try to be engaged with, with people. Uh, if I think about people like Ludwig Lachmann, I would think he was probably um, somewhat like that in terms of his mm. of his personality. And I love my interactions yeah. with Lachmann. Yeah, yeah. Uh, intellectual, always wanting to engage I ideas. Uh, I met uh, a man with whom he was uh, spent two weeks in South Africa after uh, doing uh, a bunch of uh, professional work. They went out to Kruger National Park and they lived in these little huts uh it was Hayek and his wife and this man and, and, and his wife. And they would go out at 6 in the morning when the when the gates opened. They would drive around Kruger National Park looking at uh, big game and then come back uh, to the huts at 5 uh, when they locked the gates. And then they would uh, spend uh, – he said he would spend the evening with Hayek uh, till midnight every night. Mm. Just do it for two weeks. This is when he's in his 70s. I mean he's right. really in good physical condition, very robust. And uh, he said that Hayek was not one for small talk. Uh, he always – his mind was always working. Uh, he's not going to sit around and, and do chit-chat. And mm -hmm. if, for example, the wives might comment on the decor in, the, in a restaurant or something like that, he would uh, be very polite, quietly fold his hands, but just not say anything And until it got back to a conversation that yeah. was about something – in, in his view, substantial. So he was uh, very much an academic figure. Uh, he worked very hard. He worked incredibly hard. The amount of stuff that he wrote. Now, Keynes, he was very impressed with. Hayek was very impressed with Keynes. He talked about his bewitching voice, right. his, his wonderful conversationalist. He said that Keynes and Schumpeter were the two people that if he were ever, you know, if he had the chance to have a dinner with he said those were the two that he would most want to just because of their their glittering conversation uh, just phenomenal uh uh people to to engage with but i think he was he was um someone who uh certainly was uh an intellect in a perhaps a bit more austere way his appreciation of Keynes was that Keynes was essentially, in Hayek's view, an aesthete. And I think that Hayek was essentially a scientist, mm -hmm. uh, viewed himself as a scientist. He came from a family of, of scientists. And that was his, his way of approaching the world. Right. Um, let's move away from uh, your current research and more towards the institution building aspect of your career that you've also taken on at the same time that you've taken on these other uh, projects, which is building the center at uh, Duke and the programs that you've involved in. Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what motivates that initiative and um, how, f how you feel it's going and whatnot. Okay. So I'm the director of the Center for the History of Political Economy at Duke. And the mission of the center is to promote and support research in and the teaching of the history of economic thought. Uh, the reason why uh, I went to Duke from UNC Greensboro, which is where I spent uh, you know, the, the largest part of my uh, academic life, was that history of thought is not doing well in the economics profession as people are re retiring. They're not being replaced. Uh, so... I wanted to at least push against that trend. Uh, Duke has had a long history as being a place that supported uh, the history of economic thought. Uh, Crawford Goodwin, Neil DeMarkey, and Roy Weintraub have been there for years, but even before them there were people like J.J. Uh, Spangler and, and uh, uh, Calvin Hoover. Um, so they, it had a long tradition. The, the major journal in the field, History of Political Economy, is published there. They have an archival collection, which is probably the – I think it's probably the best in the world in terms of economist papers. Uh, more than a dozen Nobel Prize winners' papers are there. Hayek's papers are there in, in microfilm. Uh, but Paul Samuelson, Ken Arrow, um, the, the list goes to 12. Uh, uh, Vernon Smith and Doug North being two that are uh, you know, more closer to the Austrian movement, so uh, – variety of different sorts of people. The papers for the American Economic Association, Carl Manger's papers are there, Oscar Morgenstern's papers are there, Don Patinkin. Uh, it's an amazing a, collection. It, it's a great yeah. list. Yeah, it's a great list. So uh, people had thought of Duke as a place to come uh, for history of economic thought. And what the center does is just to add a few more dimensions uh, because uh, uh, we have a fellowship program. So that allows... Uh, people to come who are 
either in the last year finishing up their doctorate or postdocs or mid-career people working on a project in the history of economics. They come to Duke either for a semester or an academic year. Uh, we provide them with a stipend if they need it. If they are mid-career and they have a sabbatical, they can just come on their own. Uh, it, we have a different uh, community each each year, uh, and we do try to build a community. We have a lunch every week. Uh, sometimes the lunch is just to discuss whatever anyone wants to. Other times it's uh, discussing work in progress. About every couple of weeks we have a workshop, often with an outside speaker, We've had one-day conferences, uh, and we have an annual conference in April, which is uh, affiliated with history, the journal History of Political Economy that, uh, uh, that is usually two or three years in the making, where uh, there's a theme for that conference. Uh, the papers are written expressly for the conference and then appear in a conference volume afterwards. Uh, so that's one aspect of what the center does to promote research. The fellowship program primarily does that. Uh, then for uh, trying to attract people to think about teaching the history of economics, we have a summer institute. Uh, sometimes we can think of that as also stimulating research, but it's mostly to introduce people to the history of economics, uh, particularly grad students from universities where the history of economic thought is not taught. If, uh, if I'm at uh, Harvard or Yale or uh, you know, virtually any of these uh, big-name schools, right on down to uh, much smaller places. Very few have history of economic thought at the graduate level. So students can't take it. Okay. And we have them in for uh, a two-week period. And sometimes we've done uh, a, a kind of a boot camp sort of survey course in the history of economics. And while we're telling them about what Adam Smith and, and Maltus and Marx said, we also say, here's our, how I would present it in class. Uh, here's different approaches to it. We usually have two or three faculty members who are doing the, the in the room doing the teaching, so we might have it going back and forth. One of the most productive ones actually was the first one when, uh, when it was Wade Hand, Steve Metema, and myself, and all three of us have taught undergraduate survey of history of thought courses, so each of us had different ideas about how to, how to approach it. Um, and we just simply try to introduce students to uh, some of the great books. It's basically a great books course right. when we do it that way. Other times it's it's more uh, 20th century uh, history of thought. Uh, Kevin Hoover has a, a like a little mic, mic – a macro section. Uh, Steve Metema has taken his uh, The Hesitant Hand, which is about uh, welfare economics, coast theorem, that kind of stuff, uh, and you know, boils it down to uh, a manageable number of lectures. So we're just little, you know, plugging away a little bit at a time. Whether or not it's going to have any impact, we we won't know until this generation uh, kind of moves along and see whether whether people are are interested in it. But it, I think we're doing. A really creditable job at, at what we're at what we're trying to do. Uh, people who come uh, really, I think, uh, profit from uh, their time there. Many of the people who have come uh, have been uh, Europeans, uh, or particularly for the fellowship program. But some of them gone on to some very good jobs afterwards. Yeah. So it's it is something that is uh, uh, for the for the very small number of places that are looking for someone who can do it, history of economics, uh, having gone through one of the Duke programs is, is certainly something that is helpful for yeah. them. Well, I've it's been our that, experience. I know people that I've run into uniformly um, uh, just think the world of it. I have had, uh, through a variety of circumstances, a chance to interact with a young scholar who's in religious studies, and she's um, studying the history of how uh, the... Uh, church's attitude towards markets, um, and um, she, her name is Christina McCory, and she's just a phenomenal scholar, and she had a great, you know, five flybacks this last year, you know, for jobs, which in religious studies is not, you know, the biggest deal, but she was a, a student in your programs down there and just thought the world of it and spoke very highly of it. Um, when you were uh, talking earlier today, you mentioned the uh, uh, interaction between individuals and ideas and historical circumstances, but also groups or communi discourse communities. Um, we're now starting to pay more attention to the importance of these discourse communities within the culture of science. 
Um, that's a broader project, I guess, that the people at, at uh, Hope had a conference about and, and whatnot. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe the way that you're trying to create that discourse community among a new generation of people interested in history of economic ideas. Sure. So some of the people who have come to our center over the uh, past few years and, and will be coming are people who are not trained as economists, but who are very interested in how economics has interacted with other elements of the culture or society and how to tell that story. So the history of capitalism is kind of a big thing Topic now. These or, days, yeah. yeah, yeah. And historians are, are, are taking it on. So one of the people and, – and but also sociologists and anthropologists. So two people that are, are – one has been at the center and, and another one who is coming to the center. The anthropologist was studying uh, Soviet economists from the 50s through today. And looking at the various groups and how they interacted with each other and the dynamics of power shifts <laughs> at yeah. various points in time, the planners who were uh, using input-output versus those who wanted to know how a market works versus those who wanted – to be somewhere in between. So, I mean, it, it was a, uh, I'd be fascinated by it, this. Yeah. yeah, yeah and, yeah. and, and this person is someone who had been to Russia for a couple of years, interviewing all of these people, picked up Russian on his own, just a, a fascinating, uh, anthropological study of this particular tribe or extended yeah. tribe. Um, then there's a sociologist who's looking at the concept of risk management and how it changed from the 70s through uh, the period right before the financial crisis and uh, who the players were in terms of trying to develop the ideas and how it worked its way into the public policy arena. So it's, it's not looking at some specific individual. It's looking at how these networks yeah. involved with a specific problem uh, might have emerged, changed what the what the relationships are among them. And you can apply that that sort of setup to so many different topics. Yeah. I know that, um, uh, for example, uh, two or three uh, different uh, attempts to look at funding of programs like your program here or my program uh, would be obvious uh, uh, things to look at. But the, the ones that I have in mind are how did public choice emerge uh, moving from uh, Virginia through to VPI to GMU, uh, to GMU. Yeah, uh, what were the story. what were the various steps involved? Who were the who were the personalities? Who what were the links uh, back and forth that allowed things to work in some places and not work so well in others? I mean, this is this is uh, you know, all part of the history of institution building, and those institutions are what give us the current reality that we're experiencing. Yeah. So, I mean, people say, why do you want to do that? Well, how did we get to where we are? It's not like this was a linear predetermined thing. It was built, fraught with con, uh, contingencies that had things been a little bit this way or a little bit that way, would be living in a very different world. So yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a way to understand better where we are today through understanding how we Yeah, I think it. about that a, a lot of these different, you know, we can't understand the unrealized paths of things, right? So we That's never right. – but I, I, I think about it a lot because even in your own career, if you step this way versus that way, if you write this paper or that paper and so it's – it's and, and then what were the reasons why you did one thing rather than the other? It's kind of fascinating. So I want to go back to your own uh, sort of work. And uh, you have talked about this before, but if you could talk about um, how you found your way to Hayek and to the Austrians um, through your history of economic uh, explorations as a student coming out of undergraduate school into graduate school and then as a young scholar. Sure. So um, I enjoyed uh, my undergraduate economics curriculum. Uh, I thought that economics was a way to really – understand the world in a way that, that I... That was at William and Mary. That was that at correct? William and Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And I went to graduate school uh, in the 70s at UNC, Chapel Hill. Um, I now teach at Duke, so you can imagine how that... that <laughs> uh, nobody trusts me, <laughs> basically. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, uh, I didn't uh, 
You have both colors on today. <laughs> we're, not on, we're not on video, but That's Bruce right. is wearing Just in case. North Carolina t- shirt, uh, the, 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 the powder blue, you know, and then the, I try the to, Duke Navy. <laughs> I try to pass no matter where I am. I try to pass. But uh, the the I really uh, didn't see the point of a lot of the classes that I took in grad school. Now, I, I liked many of my professors, not all of them to be sure, but many of them. Um, but uh, it was a period in which uh, theory was dominant, uh, which in which the econometrics uh, was pretty primitive, certainly by today's standards. And uh, I, I just didn't feel it connected with the world in a way that uh, I thought it it did certainly uh, as an undergraduate. I, I felt it had, but the 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 stuff we were getting in grad school. The professors were not trying to connect it. They were try- in, involved in their own research, and that, and they weren't trying to translate it. And um, when I would ask about this, they would look at me like I was from Mars. So I, I realized I wasn't I wasn't really fitting in. And then I I came to uh, realize that there was a literature uh, called the philosophy of science, and another literature called the methodology of economics. So the methodology of economics was supposed to tell you how to do economics scientifically, and it had People like Samuelson and Friedman and Lionel Robbins and Hayek and Fritz Machlup, there's a list of people who had written on on doing economics scientifically. And then the philosophy of science, I thought naively, was just going to tell you how to do uh, science, uh, no matter what the science was, give you the give you the 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 keys to the to the uh, to the kingdom in terms of understanding how to do how to do science. And indeed, the philosophy of science that was dominant through the first half of the 20th century uh, was some variant of positivism, which had its origins in the 19th century with Auguste Comte. By the way, a, a wonderful line about Auguste Comte um, and, and, and his approach to, to the hierarchies of the sciences. One of his critics said, yeah, uh, Comte's uh, approach is, is like uh, uh, Catholicism without Christ, which is to say all just hierarchy, you know, no religion, just a mindless hierarchy. Anyway, just a, just a, a point to make. Um, logical positivism of the Vienna Circle, logical empiricism in the 40s and the 50s. These are the ways that positivism developed through the 20th century, early 20th century, mid 20th century. And then by the 1970s, it had uh, gone by the wayside. And uh, most philosophers of science had said, well, it, it collapsed under its own weight. Uh, there was real problems with it. Now, the positivist worldview, however, still was quite influential in terms of many of the social sciences and particularly in economics. So economists, when they write wrote about how to do economics scientifically, sometimes they didn't make reference to any philo- philosophical literature, but when they did, it was to positivism. And it's because positivism was laying it portraying itself as laying out criteria by which you would be able to identify whether something was truly scientific. Uh, you know, rules as to uh, theory choice, criteria of theory choice that they would try to articulate and say, okay, if a theory meets these criteria, then it is scientific. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, all that kind of went by the wayside by the 70s. Thomas Kuhn, Imre Lakatosh, uh, P.K. Feyerabend, Karl Popper, all had challenged that vision of science. And if, if for those of the listeners who might know about Thomas Kuhn, he said, what you have is a paradigm that emerges, then problems are found within the paradigm, problem areas, and ultimately uh, a new paradigm emerges. The old paradigm doesn't go away very quickly because you have to wait for the people who used to work in it to die off because they often are people who had power. But the new paradigm allows you to see the world in a totally different way. And these, this Kuhnian uh, structure of scientific revolutions was talking about the physical sciences, not even talking about the, the social sciences. So you could imagine how even more applicable it might be to something like the social sciences. Well, anyway... Um, it was through these readings, uh, m- readings about methodology, uh, realizing that many of the methods that economists or many of the arguments that economists would have been using to try to justify the way they uh, did economics didn't really uh, make too much sense. Trying to figure out that sort of, uh, you know, trying to figure out why economics was looking the way it did 
I didn't get too much help from the philosophy of science, but I started to say, well, maybe there's alternative ways of thinking about how to do economics. And people who talked about alternative ways, uh, heterodox uh, schools like the Austrians or uh, neo-Keynesians or post-Keynesians, um, they were often very uh, articulate about methodological problems. So given what I had studied, I, I found, them, it, found it congenial to see what they had to say. It was through that kind of convoluted path that I came to Hayek, but not so convoluted once I started to learn the history. Okay, once I that methodological work was very much looking at texts and trying to figure out how they related to each other. With the with the uh, going to the Austrians, I was saying, well, they're in Vienna. Wait a second, Hayek is interacting with Otto Neurath. Otto Neurath was part of the Vienna Circle. Mm -hmm. It was somebody that von Mises and Hayek both reacted against when they met him. So there's an historical context to many of these ideas. Hayek was somebody I, I found positivism un, uninspiring. Well, Hayek was saying in reaction to positivism, and Mises was reacting to positivism, saying this is scientism. This is pretend science. This isn't really the scientific way to approach social phenomena or understanding of social phenomena. Mm. So I was – uh, certainly uh, set up <laughs> to find the Austrian uh, economics approach congenial because they were uh, complaining about the approaches to science that I had experienced myself when I was in yeah. grad school. So, I, I, uh, um, so early on, I would say, you know, sort of that's, this is all comes out in the Beyond Positivism uh, book. Um, but in the beginning of your career, let's say the first decade, you're already you're, you're making very strong, detailed studies of Mises and critical appraisal, and then also um, the interaction with Hayek's transformation and uh, your sort of tussling with t Hutchins and and stuff. I mean, is that how the did the evolution go from? coming upon this sort of strange idea of praxeology and then wrestling with that and then seeing how Hayek sort of might have broke from that but continued the sort of same kind of tradition in some weird way but not in a certain way? Or is it backward? I mean, what's the relationship between Mises and Hayek in your own intellectual development? Can you reconstruct that? or Sure. Um, almost uh, precisely reconstructed because I went to NYU uh, for a one-year postdoc 1981-82. And while I was there, I was completing Beyond Positivism, the book that you mentioned, which was my first book. And it was about uh, economic methodology in the 20th century and looking at the philosophy of science and then looking at the methodological arguments. Certainly being at NYU during that year made me much more aware of the arguments of the Austrians. And you'll see that in Beyond Positivism. It, it shows up in, in some of the chapters uh, looking at the methodology of economics. And towards the end of my time there, Jerry O'Driscoll, who was on faculty at NYU at the time, uh, gave me a, a uh, something that Terence Hutchison, who you mentioned, had written, um, talking about how Hayek had uh, changed. Uh, there was a Hayek one and a Hayek two. Hayek one was under the influence of Mises. Hayek two was under the influence of Popper. Hutchison was someone who helped introduce Popperian ideas to the methodological literature and economics. So he was pro-popper and anti-Mises. And I'm looking at this, and I had certainly studied Mises uh, some uh, over the course of the year. Uh, I had studied Popper a lot because of my dissertation, which was becoming beyond positivism. And Mises and uh, Popper, I thought, took two radically different approaches to methodology. Now, there have been some people who've argued that they're not as far apart as they as they might first appear, but usually a priorism versus uh, the importance of testing uh, that really that really yeah. is getting it at, at two different two different uh, uh, ways of thinking about how to how to do science, and yet Hayek was supposed to have been great friends, and he was in fact great friends with both of them. So what's going on with this? Who is this guy who's trying to blend together these two uh, apparently incompatible views? So it was actually working on that problem uh, and trying to see if I could come up with a better understanding than Hutchison's. Because uh, I didn't see I, I didn't see Hayek as being so much of an a priorist in his early work writings. Uh, Hayek himself said that 
economics and knowledge was a, a gentle rebuke. Uh, he viewed it anyway as a gentle rebuke of some of Mises's views on a priorism, um, and 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 thanked uh, Popper to be sure in that uh, in that economics and knowledge. But I didn't think that Hayek had ever become a real Popperian either. But but Hayek had said, and this is what stimulated Hutcheson to make the claims that he did was that he, met, he went through some sort of change in the 1930s. And that the change that I postulated that I think is, I, I might modify it a little bit now, but I think is, is basically true, is that he, he started to move from being a um, very much of an economic theorist in his own mind, of the type of theor people who did theory in, in his day, you know, not yeah. mathematics, but doing theoretical economics, to being a more broad social theorist and that the uh, socialist calculation debate and his work on the knowledge problem started to make him think more about these broader social issues. Mm -hmm. And so that was the transformation that I saw taking place rather than a methodological switch from Mises to Popper, which I, I, I certainly think is not the – not what – what is that is not a good way to describe what happened to him in the 1930s because he wasn't too much of one in the of one of he wasn't a Misesian and he didn't become a barbarian. So, one of the uh, personalities that you mentioned briefly in your um, unfortunately uh, for the younger generation, they don't get access to him as, as much um, in these discussions is Ludwig Lachmann. Um, but Ludwig Lachmann played a major role in the advancement of the intellectual life of Austrian economists during the 1980s um, until his, his death in 89 or 90, I guess. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk very briefly about sure. Lachman, his the power of his mind and the, you know how, why he was important to young scholars like yourself. Because right. even when you when you were at NYU, he was retired from Waterstand, and he was pretty elderly uh, at that time. But yet he had this sort of important influence on yourself and Mario Rizzo and several other people. So Ludwig Lachmann um, would come to NYU every spring from South Africa. So he would come to New York in the middle of winter and leave South Africa in the middle of summer. That already shows you the sort of commitment this guy had. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I was there, uh, as I said, uh, 81, 82. So uh, January of 1982, he shows up at the NYU uh, Austrian seminar. And uh, it is a discussion of uh, how quickly prices return to equilibrium. It was a paper that was looking at that. And at some point, I, I uh, put up my hand and I said, well, you know, I don't think you can say anything a priori about that. It's an empirical issue that depends on the particular type of market that you're looking at. And uh, he looked over at me and uh, he looked like he was slightly nodding his head, which I thought was nice. So then as we're leaving the seminar room, he walks up to me and says, so how shall we begin? <laughs> and I said, Professor Lockman, I'm not sure. He says, my office... 10 o'clock Friday morning. And uh, so I went to his office at 10 o'clock on Friday, and from 10 till noon, we sat and talked, and he asked about my interest. And over the course of the conversation, as many people will tell you this, this part of the story, he would identify articles and say, ah, yes, uh, uh, Piero Sraffa, uh, Economic Journal, uh, Volume 37, uh, Number 2, uh, 1932, pages 67 to 74. Have a look at that. And you'd write it down. It would be exactly right. He had this committed to memory. I mean, his memory was just completely photographic. He'd come up with six or seven of these things. I'd go off uh, that week. I'd read the stuff. I'd come back to his office. Uh, we'd have a discussion. He'd give me another six or seven articles. And we did this for the rest of the semester. Absolutely a, a gem, just a model of uh, an academic mentor who took this young kid who didn't know anything. I didn't know his views. I later realized that some of these things that I was spouting that I thought were so uh, uh, interesting and insightful, <laughs> you know, he was saying these things 40 years before in letters that uh, I would come across later. So he would never 
say, well, of course, that's what I said, uh, or this is, you know, this is my take on it. He just, oh, very interesting. And he would just lead me along in, in a way that he was just a, a superb, superb uh, individual to interact with. And he made the time that I was at NYU uh, special. The, the, the seminar obviously was uh, the high point of the week. And Israel Kirzner was the person who invited me there and was a you know ran the seminar in, in, a, in a stellar style, but Lachman was what made the whole NYU experience really special. And I went back a couple of times to uh, to uh, uh, give papers at the workshop and would always have have a little time in his office again and uh, just just a warm uh, uh, but but sharp mind uh, individual who was trying to stimulate a younger scholar to to become interested in the area. And as we are now learning, I mean, he and, and Kersner quite self-consciously were trying to build a, a movement. Um, so they were, they were involved in this uh, enterprise together uh, and, uh, and they tip our hats to him very successful, I would say. So um, an offshoot of that, actually following up on that, was the program that was established here at George Mason sure, University. Yeah. Um, so Rich Fink and Don Lavoy and... <clears throat> Through the initiatives with Karen Vaughn, uh, they helped found, uh, move the Center for the Study of Market Processes from Rutgers Nork to George Mason University in the early 80s. And then Jim Buchanan and his crowd moved from Virginia Tech to George Mason in the early 80s, and they formed the new PhD program. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that uh, you were one of the early – you were invited pretty regularly to come through – here and give papers with Don's workshop. Don ran the yeah. Austrian workshop here and and whatnot. So you've seen the evolution of this place over, and you have a lot of colleagues here. You know, uh, David Levy, who's also a historian of thought. You've known. You mentioned Sandy before. He's a co-author with David. Um, and uh, so, you know, do you have you have a variety of impressions of something that you've experienced over? Well, we won't mention how long now, <laughs> but, but through years. your career, several mm -hmm. years, and and uh, you know the ebbs and flows of a program here, because uh, you know Don Lavoy, unfortunately, was someone who who passed away at a young age, but at one time he's a contemporary, roughly of yours, mm -hmm. and uh, was also interested in history of ideas and 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 whatnot. So maybe you know if you could. Well, one of my fondest memories uh, was when Don invited me up, and I was giving a paper. Um, uh, and was challenged uh, by three young grad students who came up afterwards. And it was, of course, uh, Betke, uh, Prochitko, and Horwitz. Uh, and you, uh, it was like tag team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you had, I believe, just completed the paper on equilibrium was yeah that, probably yeah yeah, yeah 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 which i read and thought this is great stuff <laughs> don lavoy's he's gotten some great students and they're and they're yeah. doing good stuff so yeah i i have been uh, always hoping to get invitations to come here and whenever i get them i jump on them and uh i i think the the well i'll i'll just say that um i Walked into the into the center that you've got here the uh, uh, first time last uh, last uh, semester, and now I'm up again. And this time I had the uh, presence of mind to pull out my phone and take some pictures because it's. I go back to Duke and try to explain exactly uh, you know what <laughs> what's going on up here, and they don't believe me. It's just yeah. a wonderful uh, physical space. You've got so many students. You've got these these various. Uh, programs that are bringing people in from other places that are bringing uh, people in uh, to the PhD program, you know, the, the GMU PhD program that is affiliated with the Austrian group. So it, I, I just think you're doing marvelous stuff here. And one of the things I, 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 I should say is uh, there is a kind of a learning curve that I think both of us have experienced. So when I when I was trying to, to design what we were doing at, at, at uh, the Center for the History of Political Economy at Duke, I thought about the best and worst parts of the times that I'd been on research leave, which had been to LSE, uh, to Cambridge for a semester in Cambridge, England, and then NYU. And, you know, some places did have physical spaces. NYU didn't really have right. a place that you could get yeah. together, but they had uh, physical places at, at, uh, at, uh, at Cambridge uh, where you could gather. 
And so I wanted to take the best parts of each one of the experiences and put them together in the center. And I, and I can see that you've consciously uh, really done something like that here because uh, I, the uh, available places for interaction and the interactions that are obviously taking place. Are, it's, it's it was very, it's, uh, that is a very big part of it. Um, there was an article written by uh, Harry Johnson many years ago that talked about the importance of the architecture of intellectual space, mm -hmm. and it compares his experience at Chicago, LSE, and at Harvard. And his argument for why Chicago was so much more productive than all the other environments, even though obviously there's brilliant people in all those different places, was is that because they were all located in Hyde Park and they were like had to go there and there wasn't really much to do outside mm -hmm. and they wanted to be in the in, inside the university because they didn't want to venture too far right, out. Right. <laughs> that they ended up by like bumping into each other all the time. So they had to be, you know, doing work. Whereas if you're in, uh, like, say, uh, you know, L London, you know, you're, you know, enjoying the city. There's all kinds right. of other things rather than doing intellectual life. And so, you know, Fairfax is not London or, 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 or New York City or whatever, but that's not the main draw here. It was like we were trying to do. I, I, w I had the fortune to go and teach at New York University in the 90s from 90 to 98. And one of the things that always struck me is when I went up there, people always told a story about Roger Garrison when he was a postdoc. And Kersner asked him once, oh, you know, Roger, how can we improve the postdoc program? And Garrison said, make it non-residential. <laughs> and, and so that wasn't really the way to, you know, go forward. We wanted to make sure that we didn't have that. And we wanted to try to create, as you said, that. And so in that sense, it's more like the way Hoover had the commons area mm -hmm. and, and we wanted right. to look for for yeah. that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah. so I appreciate you saying that. But um, so one last question, is there a set of, is there a book that you've read or something over the last year that you would advise to young people to read that really sort of got you excited? Um, it could be in economics or history of ideas or anything that you just think is a great example of curiosity, learning and everything that you've been reading. Well, a lot of, of what I am reading, uh, for the for a long time has been very much oriented towards uh, the research that I'm doing. Um, so I, I'm reading mostly old books okay. uh, from from the 30s <laughs> and 40s. So one of them is The Good Society by Walter Lippmann, um, and the Method of Freedom, which was a series of lectures that he gave before he read wrote The Good Society. Uh, lectures at Harvard. He was a superb writer. I mean, this was a this. So this is a, the guy who uh, Hayek met at the Lippmann Colloquium, and that's when Hayek started this abuse of reason project. As uh, in some ways, although he had been thinking about it before, I think Lippmann's work actually gave him the impetus to to uh, start the project. Uh, well, so did this beginning of World War II, actually. Right. That was a real impetus. But, I mean, the, the, just to see somebody who, uh, as a famous newspaperman that everybody read every morning in the United States, uh, talking about these same issues that Hayek was interested in, uh, that was actually a very a very good and, and persuasive read. I mean, in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's a pre- Road to Serfdom, written in a way that is is actually uh, perhaps a little less dry and and just more thrilling. You mentioned earlier uh, Keynes's uh, Skidelsky's Keynes. Um, I've been reading chapters of that too, and I I find that to be inspirational in terms yeah. of of just being able to uh, what you're trying to match and stuff. Yeah, just yeah. I mean that it it is really a an exemplar of a of a beautifully written. Uh, biography that captures the personalities at the same time uh, capturing the the ideas a uh, little less uh, you know probably more about the personalities in the place than the ideas because he's an historian uh, not a statistician or, or an economist but um, uh, Keynes was such a full figure that he he, des he deserved and he got the right yeah any last words of advice to young people about how to pursue a career if they're slightly out of sync in economics yeah. and, you know. Uh, there are so many ways to do economics and not 
do economics the way it's done um, across the board at, at every other, you know, vanilla, plain vanilla economics at, at various sorts of places. So uh, come to GMU, come to Duke. Yeah. There's, there's some advice. Yeah, that is, that is. And have fun what you're doing, right? It's actually, and have fun what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. If you're not having yeah. fun what you're doing, you, you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life. Uh, you might want to rethink that, that decision. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. My pleasure. Great to see you, Pete. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.